myself again But it's the only way you're ever gonna learn You look back and it's all in the past I'm dwelling on the thoughts I cannot say to you If I don't say the words then maybe it's not Good morning. Welcome to NUFC Matters with me, Steve Wraith. Tuesday means I'm usually joined by Ross Gregory or Ben Jacobs. Well, today I've got both. Delighted <laughs> to see I'm joined by the two top journalists uh, on NUFC Matters. Great to have you both on, lads. And uh, one hour to discuss Newcastle United. Um, I have stuck a little link in the chat, guys, uh, for a Chronicle article, which Ross was involved with, about Bruno. That's going to be the next talking point. Have a look at it, people, in the chat. Let us know what you think when we come round to discussing it. But first, Ross, 5-1 against Brentford. I think we've all been saying it on this channel that Newcastle were going to demolish somebody at home at some point. Well, it happened at the weekend. It did. Morning, everyone. Um, yeah, fantastic result. Uh, very, very good performance as well. Um, interesting game because, you know, the the, the, the goals that they, they scored, it, it was a combination of some good football, but also some, some errors from... From um, from Brentford, but what I would say on that on that latter point though is that the errors were forced by Newcastle. By the way, Newcastle set up by the high press, by the work rate, by the way they just didn't give Brentford any any space or time at times on the on the ball. Um, so it it, it kind of emphasised it for me. It was it, it was almost a not a line in the sand, but it just showed what what Eddie Howe's been working on over the last last certainly since pre-season in terms of getting the, the team that little bit higher up the pitch or a lot higher up the pitch, having that, that high press, that work rate. It's stuff that they're doing day in, day out in, in training. And from a, I think, I suppose, from a coaching perspective, from a fan perspective, from a player perspective, when you see stuff that, that you put in practice Monday to Friday actually come off on a on a Saturday must be really, um, really encouraging to see. So, Nine goals in the last last two games. Who who was it who was saying that they might struggle to score goals this season? It certainly yeah. wasn't me. Right. Yeah, you're right. You're right. One hundred percent. Ben, I come to you with uh, a Newcastle result when Leicester haven't done so well uh, this weekend. Uh, but let's concentrate on Newcastle, mate. A great performance. Um, VAR once again coming to Newcastle's rescue. Uh, although a bit of a dubious penalty decision, which. Um, Gotta be honest, Dermot Gallagher usually gets things spot on, and I watched him on Sky yesterday, and he said the penalty was 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 correct. But you know, most people who saw it said never a penalty. But anyway, give us your give us your views. Well, I think the most important thing for Newcastle is they've just hit a bit of momentum and stride more, picking up on last season after a few stalemates and even points they picked up where they weren't at their best. And we've seen now a more expansive Newcastle who are scoring at the right time, which is a very underrated skill. And I think that they did that towards the back end of last season as well, as they started to get themselves out of trouble in March and April. There's just a knack sometimes of teams that are confident and expansive and have that hunger and buzz about them, which clearly Newcastle do. The chemistry has never been better. And when you have all of that, and I saw this covering Leicester in the Premier League as well a few years back, you tend to score goals at the right time. So it doesn't surprise me now to see Newcastle responding to that disallowed goal by VAR and scoring soon after or having a moment of adversity or a penalty go against them. And then what happened after Tony's penalty, whether you thought that it was a spot kick 
or not. Just a couple of minutes later, they get another goal and they find themselves once again bossing the game, dominating the game. And these are all good signs because you can look at results, fixture runs, tactics, signings and so on. But really, football, when you're judging whether a team are confident, can come down to really simple things. One, how do you respond to going down or conceding a goal or losing the ball? And then two, what are you doing in key stages of games? And Kevin Keegan always used to say that, that your first task, regardless of score or situation, is to come out and win over, particularly at home, the fan base in the first five minutes of each half. And they're doing that. So that's a tick. And then can they find the goals? Well, that's been proven in the last two games. Some of them were gifts, but nonetheless, they scored eight goals in the Premier League across their opening seven games. And now across the last two games, they've got nine in those two games. And that's significant as well, because we've not really seen Newcastle always hit top gear. But what we have seen in the loss to Liverpool and the draw with Manchester City, ironically, over two games where they only picked up one point. But we've seen in those two games, and particularly against Manchester City, that they can rise to the big occasion, that they can find goals against elite level teams. And now we're seeing them beat the, with respect to the last two games, expected teams, but do so comfortably. So when you add all of that up, I think that we're starting to see now a Newcastle United side that are heading comfortably towards a top half finish. And who knows if this momentum continues, they will be contenders for some kind of European football. Uh, did it shock you, Ross, that you went with an unchanged team? It certainly shocked me because with the SM available and target, you know, back in contention as well, Joel Linton, of course, I, I thought there would have been one or two changes, but you went with an unchanged team. Yeah, I mean, it didn't. It, I'll be honest, it didn't surprise. It didn't surprise me. I thought that looking at the, the way that the team performed against against Fulham, um, I thought I, I wasn't surprised at all. The one that I that I was, I suppose, I did think would probably come back in was was my target. I thought target would come back in at at left back, and he would, um, you know, Burn would maybe miss out or or, or even Botman, but. You know, there's a lot to be said, obviously, for a settled back four. I didn't expect the SM to start. I thought he would just use him as a as an impact player off the off the bench and um and kind of ease his way back back in. Similarly with with um Joe Linton. The the encouraging thing is is that we've we've talked in the past about Newcastle's um starting eleven being strong and then beneath that it's it, you know you take one or two key players out and there's a there's a little bit of a, a weakness there. There still probably is if you if if depend on the players that that miss out. So if you know if Bruno's injured, if Callum Wilson's injured, um, there's a you know there is a, a, a weakness there. Nick Pope at the same time, um, but the the players are in form. Players are enjoying themselves. You know, Jacob Murphy had another decent um, game. I know he's not everybody's cup of tea, and, and whether he's the right, you know, he's going to help take Newcastle into. Into the top six or the top eight, then then that's debatable on his on his own. Um, Joe Willock looks like he's finding a, a little bit of form again as well. Um, Sean Longstaff again in that that midfield. I thought you know he, he, they're doing nothing wrong these these lads, so it's encouraging to see to see that little bit of form and that little bit of strength and depth. But also I think really good from Eddie Howe to to reward players who who come in and who play well and who. Um, who obviously has shown shown in training that they that they're, they're up for it. Competition for places is is really really important. Um, settled squad, a settled team is important, but you've got to have that that competition for places. So so players don't get um, don't get don't kind of rest on the on the laurels and don't expect us to walk back in a in a team. So 
from a from a Newcastle perspective, that was that was really encouraging. Could bring Bruno off, could you know, could dip Joe Linton in and, and ASM in and and just rotate things a, a little bit. So yeah, really encouraging to see. Yeah, uh, Jody Toon for life more than he says that we know how he's loyal to his players, but can you see him bringing in target at left back Joe Linton in the midfield? I love Dan Byrne, but he probably had his worst game for us on Saturday. It's all about opinions, Ben. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I was surprised. Some people in the chat, it's mixed mixed bag. Some people said that, you know, he did the right thing. How's loyal to his players? Um, but, you know, I guess, you know, you, you made a point there about the two teams we've just played. The teams you would be expected to beat. If you're a Newcastle, if you're a Leicester, if you're an Aston Villa, I suppose, you know, in, in recent seasons, pushing pushing for, you know, maybe those European slots. Um, you know, he is loyal to his players, but when he plays those bigger teams and we're going to play one, two in the next three games, um, he's going to have to change things, Ben, isn't he? Well, it depends. I mean, when they played at home to Manchester City, we saw a full-blooded Newcastle who were dynamic, hungry, certainly didn't show any respect against the best team in the league away from home against a big team. That's going to be interesting to see the tactical nous. And the irony for me is that when you look at last season, especially when Newcastle were in trouble comparative to the back half of the season, away from home, they were much more positive. They didn't just surrender possession. They weren't afraid to be on the front foot. And let's see whether, depending on league positions over the course of the next few weeks before the break, depending on momentum and so on, if they decide to kind of drop that mantra, especially, as I say, when you're on the road of being the underdog. And I don't think that they have to worry about that mantle now. Sometimes it can help you, especially when you're at home against a Manchester City, feeling like you've got nothing to lose, feeling like the pressure's almost off because everyone expects Manchester City to win every game. But when you play, for example, a Manchester United or uh, Tottenham, I don't think now we'll see too much negativity from Eddie Howe and that will reflect in his selection. And I think what's interesting, especially with January now coming onto the horizon, is just that there is that ability to add a little bit of depth while still rewarding the current crop. And last summer, in stark contrast, maybe because of the January that Newcastle had and needed to have to stay up, or maybe because of the excitement where you start on zero points and everyone thinks that Newcastle are going to make a big leap in the table. But there's maybe a feeling like they should have been chasing after all of these elite-level marquee players without a respect and acceptance as to what was at the football club. And because of who they bought in January and how they finished last season, there has to be that reward, not only out of a loyalty because managers don't work like that, but also because of momentum. If you're winning and playing well, then as long as you're starting 11 a fit, most of them end up being all automatically into the side so you've got a Trippier for example or a share and some would argue that Byrne warranted it on the back end of last season Bruno will pick himself Joe Linton picks himself when he's fit and then it's good to be honest to see a player like Miguel Almiron who had an excellent pre-season get into that starting 11 without any January feeling that he needs replacing or any summer necessity to move him down the pecking order. So that's a smart bit of management from how to say, I've got enough. And then you judge that and then you tweak it in January. So then when you play these bigger teams, I think the selection will still reflect that. And managers are smart not to over-rotate, especially not at Newcastle where they don't have the same depth as, let's say, a Man City or a Chelsea. You keep this formation where possible and your core starting 11 
even if some think that there are shortcomings because they're getting the results at this point. And then in January, I just expect a bit of depth in a few key positions. So there's goalkeeper and whether they're going to bring in a number two or someone that can even compete with Nick Pope. There's still that creative minded player, which is why they were looking at Madison and Jack Harrison at Leeds, for example. But I don't really think Howe has to do that much at the moment unless he gets injuries. If these kind of results continue, I expect Newcastle to rock up to a Manchester United or a Tottenham home or away across the season and be far more positive than we've seen in seasons gone by. Mm. OK, a uh, quick question there for you from Mr Anderson. Anything more on the Brazilian kid, Ross, that you mentioned? Uh, still monitoring, still still, um, still keen on him. Um, I think it could be one that, that goes through in, in January, potentially. So we've said before, Newcastle, uh, uh, as well as looking at their the, the kind of top-line first-team squad, they're, they're really keen on bringing in young players who can who can add value, who can, um, who can come in. You know, we've seen it with with, um, with the Australian guy who, who was brought in last week. Um, similarly with, with Santos in, in Brazil. They're looking across the, the market. You know, um, Steve Nixon's, you know, held talks with, with clubs in, in, in being over and had a look. So I think there is a, there's, there's, well, there's definitely an interest whether they can get that deal turned turned in by, by January. We'll have, to, we'll have to wait and see. You know, figures have been quoted at kind of around twenty million, which I don't think Newcastle have. It has. I don't think it's put them off. I think it's it's something that they that they were still willing to to consider, even at a at a big price. He's very very highly rated, but he's not the only one. They're looking at a, a couple of uh, young players in in South America, um, in Brazil, trying to to expand that kind of um, the the network across into into South America and, and bringing in some of the best young players that can complement the likes of. Like to Bruno and Joel, and who are already here. So yeah, want to want to certainly keep a, an eye on Newcastle. They've got a bit of competition, but um, but they're really really um, in a good place when it comes to comes to attracting young players into the into the team in January. And guess what question Ben's got uh, from Rich <laughs> Joblin, which I'm sure you've seen. Hey Steve, could you ask Ben if he thinks Newcastle will go back in for Madison in January? And if so, <laughs> would he be tempted given Newcastle's current league position? This question, you are going to get sick of this over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and I'm afraid the answer hasn't moved on significantly and probably won't for a month or two. Naturally, Newcastle's good form will help, but I've said many, many times that James Madison is playing well enough to join a club that have got either automatic, in inverted commas, European football season on season or arguably Champions League football. And if he gets to the halfway point of the season and he feels that in the summer of 2023, he's going to get an offer from, let's just say, one of the big London clubs with Tottenham, the most likely they've certainly scouted him over the course of the last two windows, then I think he'll wait and that could potentially work against Newcastle. I think it's going to be a big ask to get James Madison to leave Leicester mid-season, even if Leicester continue their woes and Leicester are quite prepared to offer Madison a new deal and very hopeful he'll sign it and that then protects the sell-on value, gives Madison extra wages that he can then get matched if or when he moves and then he's got all of the time in the world to potentially find a club in the summer. So make no mistake, Newcastle are interested, they're there, they obviously bid a couple of times, they were miles off Leicester's quoted valuation but as we saw with Fafana that doesn't always mean a great deal so we need to now see whether they push 
and try and jump ahead of the queue. I think that they would be smart, especially if Madison doesn't go to the World Cup because then he's got that time and he's watching everyone else play and maybe that influences his decision in some respects. And he does decide to listen to offers in January, but Newcastle would be smart to move fast if they are seriously interested in Madison and try and jump ahead of the queue because he's the kind of player that is very confident in his own ability he shows in his post-match interviews and in the dressing room what an asset he is to a football club it's nonsense any suggestion as we heard from Gary Neville that he's somehow a bad egg or influence or would be a poor traveler for England he's not anyone that's met Madison will tell you instantly that he's very much matured as a person he's a great character and he would be a fantastic ambassador as well as footballer for any club that signs him so there's going to be that demand but I certainly wouldn't call Newcastle advanced or front runners at this point and once again, to reiterate, James Madison is very confident in being able to join a club next season that will have European, if not Champions League football, should he leave Leicester. And as a result, Newcastle are really going to have to sell this move. Otherwise, I think they may get beaten by other suitors. Good luck to Ian. Off to the doctors. Uh, he says uh, just checking on his liver. So I hope that goes well, uh, Ian. Um, OK. The link that I put in the chat, you should have had plenty of time to have a look at it. Ross has uh, stuck it up there. And it's, it's a debate that's been going on on uh, social media over the, the weekend. Bruno's performance uh, certainly had tongues wagging. Uh, Carragher and Neville uh, giving them um, a, a, a big up last night. Roy Keane um, speaking very highly of him. Uh, praise indeed from some of you know the, the best midfielders we've seen in recent times. And um, yeah, his performance was fantastic, Ross. So that's prompted... Um, your your uh, article as to is he the best midfielder uh, that Newcastle have had uh, at the club? Now, I've gone out and said no straight away because in my time, personally, um, Rob Lee and Gary Speed uh, have been the best midfield players that I have seen. However, um, that doesn't mean that in the future, Bruno could surpass them because he's only been here five minutes. He's certainly got... Everything it looks like he's a he's a complete baller. Um, he could score goals, he creates goals. Um, there's a love in with him, but this is just the start of the journey. I'm sure he's the best midfielder that younger fans have seen, no doubt about it. But for somebody of my age, definitely not. Uh, a lot of people say, "What about Gaza?" Well, Gaza wasn't the Gaza of 1990 when I watched him at Newcastle. He was great. He was raw. Um, you know, by his own admission, he was a, you know, he, he was carrying a lot of weight back in those days. And he was, you know, he was just raw talent. Um, I saw some great goals from him. And still my favourite goal at St. James's Park to this day was FA Cup, fifth, um, fourth round, Crystal Palace, top of the onion bag, got stuck in the stanchion, 1-0. That was my favourite goal. It's still my favourite goal of all time at St. James's Park. Um, but yeah, for me, Rob Lee and Gary Speed. And if I had to be pushed, it would be Rob Lee, uh, was my, is my greatest ever midfield player for Newcastle in my time as a fan. But it's an interesting debate because you can see in the chat as well, there's a lot of people who are of an older generation than me. A lot of people will say Tony Green was the best ever midfielder. And he only played, you know, minimum games because he was, you know, robbed of his career with injury. So... It's a great debate, Ross. What, what kind of feedback are you having so far? Yeah, well, well you know, the, the debate, the debates kind of sparked into life, obviously after after Bruno's performance on on Saturday, and and I'm very I'm very kind of reluctant just to take a a snapshot on 
on social media of, of what you know what what people say on Twitter because I, I don't think it purely reflects the the overall views of a of a fan base um, and certainly not not it's quite generational as you as you say Steve so um, it's for me you know so we've, we've had some good reaction to it we've had a lot of um, we've got the survey up and up and running and there's been there's been a, a lot of votes on it um, I don't really want to kind of give away too much as to who's who's leading the, the way at the minute but um, um, it's it's sparked a, a, a lot of debate. For me, I'm I'm very similar to you, Steve. I watched. Um, I was fortunate to watch watch a little bit of Gaza, um, kind of mid 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 the to yeah mid to late eighties, I suppose. Um, he, you know, real kind of talent, real, but like you say, raw, very very raw, and, and certainly not the complete midfield player that he developed. He developed into. Um, lucky enough to watch people like like David Batty, like Gary Speed, um, Lee Clark, Rob Lee. Uh, Johan Kabai, who, who for again another brief period was was exceptional. So I've gone and, and nailed my colours firmly to the mast and, and said, you know, Rob Lee comfortably for me is the is the best all round midfielder that Newcastle have had in my time of in my forty years of, of watching Newcastle. You know, he, when he came in, he was a he was a wide player, he was a, he was a winger. He he kind of moved into a central midfield position and, and just became this box to box. You know, um, goal scorer and midfielder scored on his debut for England. You know, he, he just became a real goal threat in that in that central midfield area. Um, could you know could score goals? You know, he's arriving, he's timing in the box, very similar to to a Frank Lampard or a Brian Robson in terms of how he arrived in that box and, and managed to get himself um, get himself a goal. But he could score from distance. He could score with his head. He could he, he could win tackles. He could do the lot for me, Rob Lee. Later on in his career, he obviously he dropped a little bit. Further deeper and, and became a bit more of a, a kind of a, a defensive midfielder, a CDM, if you want to, if you want to call it that. Um, when his legs had, had perhaps gone a, a little bit, but in terms of all-round player, he's comfortably the, the the best midfielder I've seen. You know, let's not forget he cost for seven hundred thousand pounds as well. A probably you know, pound for pound, absolute unbelievable signing. But but bringing it back to the modern day, Bruno, from what I've seen, and let's be honest, we've only seen him for for six to eight months or so. But he is as close to being the a, a Rob Lee kind of substitute for me that I've that I've seen. If you want to play Bruno as a six, he can play as a six. If you play him as an eight, he can play as an eight. If you play him as a ten, he's 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 absolutely outstanding as a ten. He can play he's you know it's interesting midfield um players I, I think we've we're moving slightly for me. We seem to be moving slightly away from the 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 six, eight, ten kind of positioning, whereby you know we used to have box to box midfielders, your Brian Robson, your Stephen Gerrard, your Frank Lampard, so on and so forth. Over recent years, we've then moved to you've got to be a specialist in the position, you've got to be a, a CDM, you've got to be you've got to be a ten, you've got to be these type of players. I think we're moving away slightly away from that as well. You know, your Declan Rices and your Jude Bellinghams can do it, can do the ball. They can drive from midfield. They can they can play in various different positions. I think we're moving a bit more toward back towards that kind of complete midfielder. And Bruno, for me, whichever position we play him in, he can do a he can do an outstanding job in there. And I think if he stays at Newcastle over the next three to five years, which which we hope he will do, um, he could absolutely go down as one of one of Newcastle's greatest ever players. 
Okay, the list that has been come uh, been put up by uh, the Chronicle, compiled by the Chronicle, uh, Ben, is Gaza, Joe Harvey, Tony Green, David Batty, Gary Speed, Johan Kabai, Rob Lee, and Bruno. Um, as someone who has Newcastle as their second team, <laughs> who are you going to go for, Ben? Well, I think we have to define midfielder first of all, because the more creative-minded ones, those that kind of play midfield but were more creative, could perhaps move into what we now, in a modern-day sense, would call forwards or wingers or tens or false nines and so on. So maybe some of these names are up for debate where they would be in the formation. But I think, first of all, to the older generation, Joe Harvey has to be a strong consideration simply because he captained Newcastle to back-to-back FA Cups in the 50s. But for me, there's a few names that stand to mind. One is actually David Ginola, which might seem quite strange, but I think sometimes a player can come in for a very brief period of time and just have a massive impact. And because it was Ginola times Kevin Keegan and he came from PSG and a bit like Bruno was like an instant cultural kind of icon you have to make a case for him because he effectively arrived and won over the fan base quickly whilst bamboozling defenders so I would put him in the conversation and Gaza has to be up there as well but I accept the point that you make about form at the time he actually played for Newcastle as opposed to the wider player. Rob Lee for me as well I agree with what's been said just one of the best all-round midfielders and when you look at how composed he was in possession and the energy that he brought to matches plus the fact that he was an accomplished goal scorer you would make a case I think if you just scored it statistically rather than on gut reaction, that he would be the choice. So if we're going to take away the passion and the subjectivity out of it, then were you to work out a criteria to score it statistically, then I think there would be a very strong case for Rob Lee. And again, depending on how you play him in a formation, could you perhaps put Peter Beardsley in the conversation who was more of a midfielder come forward. So my choice, if I only had one, would be Rob Lee because I like the stats, so I'm going to geekily score it. And I think that if I looked at pass completion, if I looked at tackle rate, if I looked at minutes played, if I looked at appearances, if I looked at goals scored, then of course, in each of those individual categories, there may be others that supplant Rob Lee. But when you add up the scores from each of those slightly more dispassionate categories and you look at his impact overall during his time at Newcastle United if only got one pick then that would go to Rob Lee and value for money uh, that's the big thing I, I think I, I guess before we move on from this and please check out uh, the Chronicles um, link it's at the top of the chat well worth checking out please vote on it and uh, subscribe to the Chronicle you get some great stuff from uh, Ross and the lads down there um, but yeah how long, how long how long Ross do you have yeah, to play that's it's that's an interesting one because obviously Rob Lee's got that he's got longevity behind him, hasn't he? You know, he's 380 games, 50, 60 goals, you know, one, I think he's probably seventh or eighth um highest Premier League goal scorer still for, for Newcastle. So he's he's got that longevity. I don't think it necessarily matters on, on longevity. I, I I think it I think if you if you've got two players who are very similar, then in, in somebody's played 380 games and somebody's played 38 games, and I think it does tip the favour. In their in that um, in their in their way, you know, Tony Green. I wasn't lucky enough to, to see him, but by all accounts, an absolutely outstanding player. But 
you know, cut short after 30, 40 games because of because of injury. Um and, and you know, you likewise you could say the same about, about Bruno. We can we, is it unfair not to, to consider him just because he's he's only been here six months or so? Um I'll go back to the, the best defender I've seen at, at St. James is in a black and white shirt is, is Jonathan Woodgate and his career wasn't particularly long at Newcastle. So I do think you can consider um players dependent on on you know they don't have to have played 300 games for example to to, to be considered as the as the greatest uh the peter Beardsley um one is, is really interesting i've had a bit of debate on on the on the chronicle um chat on the on the comments at the bottom of the article about Beardsley. for me he was a forward um and when he played he was a he was a second forward behind Yandy Coles and your keegan's in the 80s or, or gary lineker for england he did obviously drop back a little bit deeper and and if you were looking at, at him today, he'd probably be he'd probably be a, one a, a ten attacking midfielder. If you were playing a four three three, he wouldn't be playing as one of the wide players. I don't think he'd probably play as that is that Madison type of role that we that we've been talking about. You know that 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 attacking midfielder. So for me, he wasn't in the mix. We didn't include him in the in the in the list because I, I see him as a forward, um, but absolutely outstanding player and, and probably well undoubtedly in the top two players that I've seen at, at Newcastle. Um, Peter Beardsley, but but yeah, it's a really interesting debate. I love these debates. I love I love being able to go back and and compare and contrast. And, and we're talking about different eras. Would, would Rob Lee and Gary Speed have, have, have been as successful in 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 this era? Would would you know? Would Gaza? Would 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 Tony Green? Would Joe Harvey? It's it's a it's a really interesting debate. There's no right or wrong answer, but that's what football is about, isn't it? It's about opinion. It's about debate. It's about about. Um, about you know looking at the stats, looking at or taking on pure gut and passion and and, and kind of joy for 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 watching a certain player. So yeah, I love it, mate. Yeah, it. yeah, me too. And of course, when um, James Madison comes to Newcastle, there'll be no competition. You'll have to do it all yeah. again. Uh, longevity just uh, convinces more people. Um, it's an interesting point, and it's it's one we're, we're touching on now, Dan. But yeah, Ben, I mean, you you made that point. David Janola is another one who you chucked into the mix. I mean, Lauren Robert scored some brilliant goals. I see Johan Kabai's on there. I mean, that's certainly a little tip to the younger generation who will remember Johan Kabai. But I guess you know, if someone comes in and you know they're there for a couple of seasons, and you know Newcastle win the league, it's another player that will be chucked in the mix. But yeah, it's it's. It, 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 it's how good that player is and, and what kind of effect that has on the team, I guess. Yeah, and I think the other thing is just that do you judge? And it's much easier, I think, personally, when you're voting across an entire career in retrospect or in the moment. And I think that when voting on this, some people will just be so caught up in the Bruno wave that if they're having this debate, they'll nail their colours to him. And others will say, let's see what happens at the end of the career or the Newcastle tenure versus a player that we already know has gone down into folklore. And I'm not saying that Bruno hasn't gone down into folklore. That's the beauty of a player that wears his heart on his sleeve and wins over the fan base so instantly. But we don't know how high he's going to peak. So you're still ultimately judging him based at the moment upon potential and the other really interesting thing is just the quality of standard and with the Premier League growing from strength to strength and all players regardless of their stature getting better because the very standard of the league is better if you are to as I said earlier judge them very dispassionately based statistically then it's quite clear that Premier League players now 
have got a lot more in their armory. And I've said this many times about Leicester as well. The irony is that the team that won the Premier League were weaker than the team that Leicester had a few seasons later that didn't win the Premier League and missed out on the Champions League on the final day of the season. And that's just football evolving. So you have to judge a player in their own time. But this all fuels into the debate. It's very hard to judge cross-generationally and it's very hard to judge a retired player where you can see the full stats every moment and game versus somebody that's still live and ongoing but is far more topical and conversational and I think the final thing is just the names that we're not even speaking about at the moment that could be factored into a debate so Kabai is a really good example and very much should be considered as one if not Newcastle's greatest Premier League player in that specific position. But when compared to other midfielders that had different things in their armory, you maybe then put them on a par and some people won't even consider Kabai. But look at, for example, Czech Teote and God rest his soul. That's the type of player that in my rankings, if you were only looking at the decade, then he's not that far behind Kabai, but is probably not in this conversation period. And that just shows you how many great players in midfield Newcastle have had, particularly in the Premier League era. Mm, I mean, this will go on, on and on and on. PDK is obviously a clearly big fan of Bruno. He says, if uh, Bruno helps Brazil win the World Cup, will he be our best midfielder then? No, because that's for Brazil for me. But, you know, look, it's, it's a great debate. I am not saying that Bruno can't achieve that kind of greatness. But what he actually done, other than, you know, score some great goals, transform Newcastle's team a little bit, um, you know, and, and, and there's a lot to do, PDK, but he could be, he could be. I genuinely think he's the best midfielder we have at the moment, you know, and that's not really a compromise. I think that's where we're at. L Stapleton says, regardless of who is best, the current crop are there at the beginning of something special, so I have the chance to gain legendary status and Trippier started it all. Uh, Dan says there'll always be a new best and favourite, so it's ultimately an impossible question to answer 100%. Uh, and Alan says the back heel goal at Southampton started the love-in with Bruno for me. It was class, yet nobody has mentioned Nobby Solano, a great player. Great shout as well, Nobby Solano, another one out there. OK, um, moving on to something I know these guys have both got an opinion about. Ross, the anniversary last week, or caniversary, as many people were saying, <laughs> um, did see... Uh, various owners come out and make statements. Now, uh, Al, Al Ramayan, who uh, Ben has been waiting uh, with bated breath to hear from, um, came out with a statement, albeit uh, emailed to season ticket holders and then picked up by the media. Amanda and Mia Dad came out and did a, a rather nice three, four minute piece to camera. Jamie Rubin came out and did similar. Uh, Darren Eels is now out tonight on Radio Newcastle, which I think we'll all be eagerly tuned into because there was a bit of criticism I saw floating around as to why haven't we heard anything from Darren Eels? You know, um, so he's out on Radio Newcastle on a live talking uh, tonight, which should be interesting. I think we'll all be tuned into that. Um, but look, communication has been a problem for years, Ross. We haven't heard anything uh, from our owners under the Ashley era. Very little. You know, Derek Lambay has tried it, got bitten once and didn't like it. Lee Charney decided to go in with a vow of silence. So, I mean, look, for 14 years, we've heard nothing. We've, you know, we've, we've become used to that. And without delving into the whole political spectrum again, because we've, we've done that to death on here, let's just talk about the communication. You know, was that enough for us? And do you want to see more of that from, from, from PIF? Because... You know, we've heard something from, from him at last. Do you want more from them? 
Absolutely, I want more. Absolutely, yep. and I think I think everybody connected with the with the club really should should want more. I'm not. I don't think anybody expects that there is um, constant sound bites or that you know, um, Amanda or, or or the PFR PIF guys are, are going on on weekly podcasts or holding their own. You know, coming on here every every week or, or whatever they're doing. We don't expect kind of you know daily updates. We've seen ownership in the past who are very vocal on on social media or very vocal in doing um in doing podcasts and, and promoting themselves. Not not Newcastle uh, owners I, I must say, but you know, elsewhere. And it just you know, down the road was it was it a good example with, with Stuart Donald and, and Charlie Metfin um and looked at how that one kind of panned out. So I I think you have to be you have to be realistic. You know the, the first and um main issue and main job for for the ownership is to own the club and to run the club and to to manage it the best way that they can. Um, but to to keep them lines of communication going with with the fan bases, uh, with whether that's via via talking directly to the fans through 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 podcasts and, and social and, and so on and so forth, or or going via the media like like you know maybe Senior Castle tonight, um, or or the Chronicle or or, or whoever it is, the Times or whatever platform it might be, the Athletic, I think it's really important that that these lines of commu- communication are are open. What I'd like to see a little bit more of is the Q&A kind of stuff. So not just here's a, here's a statement that we're putting out um, and it's done in-house and it's, and it's quite, it's quite bland or it's quite, um, it's quite PR-like. I would like to see every now and again them, them, uh, the ownership to, 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 to take questions from fans, to take questions um, in, a, in a live arena, if you like, rather than just um, submitted um, or journalists and, and, be, and be as transparent and open as possible. But you're absolutely right what you said at the, at the start there, Steve. You know, we've had 14, 15 years of, of zero communication. So the, the, the communication and the, the openness from, from the fan, from the ownership so far has been excellent. It's been really, really good. Long may it continue. Doesn't mean it can't can't be a little bit better. Doesn't mean we can't keep asking for a little bit more. But it's been uh, it's been a breath of fresh air so far from um, from PIF and uh, Amanda Stavely in the in the Rubens. Yeah, it is. Uh, correction, it's uh, tomorrow night, 7 late for Darren Eels on BBC Radio Newcastle. I think what we might do is do Geordie's here. Geordie's there 6 till 7, so everybody can tune into that because it'll be, uh, it will be enlightening, that one. OK, Ben, you, you and I have had many chats about this. Um, it was nice to see. Um, look, it wasn't a great deal. Um, it was it, it was a bit of lip service, if you want my honest opinion, Ben. I'm certainly with you on that. Um, again, you know... The whole weekend was was tarnished a little bit with, you know, media coming out and attacking it and you know, attacking the takeover, having a pop at it. And I know we've just got to get used to that, but it, I just think, well, why why continue to highlight Newcastle when there's been so many other examples of foreign ownership and suspect foreign ownership or involvement in the British game? Why, when you're opening gambit to Newcastle United on match of the day, is is it about our ownership? I, you know, I struggle to get. I struggle to get around that. You made your point. We understand it. Just, just you know, do if you're going to do it for one, do it for everybody. Yeah, I think sometimes journalists are doing it for everybody, but individual fan bases only see the coverage of their own team. So 
they think ultimately that the media have got it in for Newcastle United. But I, but certainly... I do watch match of the day. I do watch match of the day, and I watch it all, and I do watch the introdu introductions all the games. And I've got to be honest, I've never heard them say. Um, we're now going to watch Manchester United play Everton. Uh, and don't forget, Manchester United had, you know, Saudi money coming in via a sponsorship deal, blah, blah, blah. I mean, they don't do that, Ben. Yeah, that's fair. Match of the day is a highlight show and a jibe, if you like, at Newcastle is because it's the anniversary weekend. And yeah. I think that is just something that you have to accept that an anniversary puts Newcastle back into the media spotlight for both good and bad reasons. You're absolutely right in what you say. If there's a Manchester United anniversary, if there's a Manchester City anniversary, then the standard should absolutely be the same. So that's the first thing to point out. But I think that ultimately the takeover's done. And if I was a Newcastle United fan, I wouldn't have too much issue now with people taking cheap shots at the backdrop behind the takeover. I would be more pleased that a year on the club has made progress and the fact that people are still talking about it and Newcastle fans may say some are bitter about it is testament to the fact that it's working because I can promise you that if there was disaster behind the scenes, if Newcastle were in the relegation zone again, heading towards the halfway stage, if PIF were not invested, if they'd have bought another club that had Champions League football and so on, then there would be sections of the media having a field day at what a disaster the takeover was. And instead of seeing the Saudi political narrative, you would much more see the Newcastle disaster narrative. And that tells you ultimately that things are working because people are finding reasons to criticise. And I've said many times that there is a lot of areas that are worthy of criticism, but not all of them are directly connected to Newcastle United. So it comes back to that debate once again over the transparency behind the takeover. And I still hope that one day we find some of those details. But away from that, Newcastle United as a football club a year on is healthier, is hungrier, is financially more stable and everything about the club from a football perspective is moving in the right direction. And that is worthy of celebration come an anniversary. And it's befitting of the 5-1 victory over Brentford that Newcastle got that route on such an occasion. So there's a lot to like. But regarding the communication, I think we still have to be very clear here. And yes, we're greedy as journalists because we want the access and the interviews. But as I've said before, if it goes via the fan base, that is also very sensible and perfectly normal. But there is still that slightly bizarre dynamic where we're hearing from the minority owners and they are doing a lot right. And sometimes they're speaking on behalf of PIF as well. So you can't say just because it's Amanda Staveley, she's not reflecting PIF at times. But there are certain elements of the direction that the football club are heading in that are PIF or Saudi specific whether they relate to sponsorship, whether they relate to strategy, whether they relate to multi-club model. And I think those are the aspects that the fan base would really like to hear more from and we as journalists would like to ask on. So if you look at the Premier League, you can absolutely make the argument that there's a whole load of owners that never speak. Look at Abramovich at Chelsea, won 21 trophies, never did an interview as far as I'm aware. Nobody really criticised that. He was just a distant owner, but there were plenty of people at Chelsea during that era that did go on record. So that's absolutely fine. And if PIF want to take that model, I think to some extent they can. But because of the backdrop 
And because let's not forget that this entire ownership group and even Mike Ashley at times in his statement fighting with them said that they were the ones fighting for transparency and that reflects in their communication. So I do think at some point, Al Rumian in particular has to come in front of either the fan base, but preferably the media as well, and at least once have the questions put to him. And providing he answers them transparently and openly and honestly, if certain media then push too hard or unfairly, he's given his answer. And then the media are the ones that look stupid. But if he doesn't give his answer, then the media, to some extent, are entitled to keep pushing. And then if you take the politics out the way, I think the fan base are still entitled to know what the end game is. Because Al Rumian went on record in Saudi Arabia and spoke about the Chelsea model and effectively flipping 350 odd million into what he quoted as about 3.5 billion. And then we know they looked at other clubs whilst the Newcastle takeover had that long period of impasse. So what do they want to do with the club? Are they going to buy other clubs? Are they going to have a multi-club model? Are they going to bring in more Saudi-related sponsorship like with Noor? Are they going to go over there? Are they going to do anything in the community? How does it exactly tie to Vision 2030? As we get closer to Vision 2030, what will be the desire in terms of Newcastle's affiliation? Commercially, is MENA, which is Middle East and North Africa, Saudi's the biggest region, is that their primary target? Or are they looking at North, South and Central America? Because that's where the 2026 World Cup is. So what's the brand growth as well? And then what will go on with the stadium, the training facilities? Is it a youth-led strategy? Is it a data-led strategy? And so on. I'm not saying our Rumian's got all the answers, but what I am saying is that once, given we're over a year in, I do think directly, openly and transparently, a PIF representative has to, or should anyway, in my opinion, go directly in front of either the fan base or the media or both. And as Ross correctly said, have a two-way conversation, not a statement. Mm. Six Saudi questions in a 20-minute interview with how is ridiculous. It was, yeah, I mean, I watched the press conference and I mean, you know, it's how many times you can say the same question in a different way. It was farcical. But Eddie Howe is very good at batting it off and just cracking on. And he's very good at his media duties. I didn't think I'd see anybody as good as Rafa in such a short space of time, but he is uh, very good. Let's change subject, Ross. And a one that got brought up on the fans forum last night, the Monday Club, was a one brought up by Melly Barnes, who was a Manchester United fan who came on, uh, to talk about Newcastle uh, as a football club. And he, he basically was referring to glory seekers. Um, he was saying that Newcastle will attract glory seekers. He says you had 10,000 fans less. There'll be people in the ground now who are just coming to see uh, Newcastle, um, you know, be the best team and the richest team in the, in the land. Um, but he also said that he feels that after going to Man City, um, he didn't want to talk about the game, bizarrely, as a Man U fan. But um, he says after going to Man City, um, he believes, because he's a Geordie, uh, but, it, but, as it, but as a season ticket holder at Old Trafford, he believes that... Um, he believes that Newcastle should build a new stadium and, and a new infrastructure and should move away from St. James's Park to progress. So two points there, Ross. Glory seekers. Um, can anyone who's just bought a season ticket be called a glory seeker? Because what was getting thrown back at him last night was that a glory seeker has to be somebody chasing silverware, surely, and we haven't won anything for years. Um, secondly, the stadium. Should, should we uproot and move? Uh, okay, first question, first point. Uh, yes, there will be glory seekers. There undoubtedly will be glory seekers in some way, shape or form. Whether, whether the term glory seeker is the right term or not, 
but there will be casual fans now who want to come or uh, who've never really been too interested in, in watching Newcastle um, under the Mike Ashley era who will who will want to now come back to the club. Now that's that's whether it's, it's glory seeking or whether it's just um, coming along for the the ride. You know, there's a there's a there's a different vibe, there's a different atmosphere, there's a different positivity around around Newcastle. People didn't really want to be associated with it under under Mike Ashley. Um, it wasn't pleasant experience. It wasn't a pleasant. It wasn't a, 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 a something that that got your juices flowing, if you like, on a on a Saturday. Or oh, let's go and watch. Let's go and watch Newcastle. People's money is tight, and people have ultimately have to make decisions about what they want to do on a Saturday afternoon. And, and for a lot of people, that is going to Newcastle thick and through thick and thin. But for others, they, they grew tired of the experience, of the of the lack of ambition, of the the absolutely. Um, dire and turgid football that was on offer. The whole um, buying into... You've got to buy into a club as well and, and there was nothing for Newcastle fans to buy into there. There was no ambition and no positivity around it. So so it was a difficult sell for, for some of them to, to kind of justify keep keeping going. So they, a lot of those fans have come back and, and I know a lot of them myself. You know, there's, there's, there's fans who've, who, who drifted away from the club who now... Who now are back and, and want to to re-engage with it, which is which is great. It doesn't mean that necessarily that they're that they're glory seekers because you know some of these guys have, have, have been uh, and girls have been watching Newcastle, you know, since the since the eighties, since the nineties, and they've drifted away a little bit, and now they want to re-engage because it's a it's a different club and they're, they're they're excited again. But you will ultimately you will get people who are who who want who who see Newcastle as being the next big thing and, and want to want to be part of it, and and yeah. Potentially, potentially glory seekers. Um, for me, I think to move on to the second point, I would hate. I've said it before on this show. I'd hate to move away from St James's. I would absolutely, I would absolutely hate it. I think for me, everything needs to be done. Every avenue needs to be explored. Every uh, architect across the land needs to be spoken to to say about how how the the current stadium can be expanded, can be extended, can be remodelled so that. Uh, we can squeeze another five or ten or fifteen thousand seats into it somehow. Um, if that's not possible, then then you know maybe we will have to look at it in, in a new stadium. I would hate to go too big. I'd hate it to go and, and start thinking right. We need eighty, ninety thousand because it's it's very um, it's very it's very determined by by success on the pitch. Um, and and that can be fleeting. That, that you know, we hope it, it isn't, and we hope that Newcastle uh, here to stay as a as a kind of Premier League force. Um, but there does need to be some sort of expansion in, in of either of the the current ground or moving into the new stadium. Oh, I'll I'll be honest. I'll, I'm somebody who um, who drifted away from Newcastle under under Mike Ashley. Season, I did have a season ticket. Gave it up. Didn't didn't stop going. Um, because it wasn't enjoyable. I didn't. I didn't want to be part of that experience. I didn't agree with the ownership. I didn't agree with this, that, or the, or the other. Various different reasons. I've got my reasons, and other people will have. I'll have theirs. Um, I don't have a season ticket now. I can, you know, if I want to go on a on a in a press pass, there's potential for for doing that. Of course, there is. But I'd rather be in with the with the fan base. So I'm now looking around for tickets if I want to go to a game, and I want to, you know, I'm having to. To borrow ones off off mates or pick up any spares or anything else that's that's going that's fine. I'm not I'm not complaining about that. All I'm saying is there'd be a lot of people who are in a similar similar position as what as what I am. Um, I do so yeah. 
I do think that there needs to be a um, an expansion of the stadium in in some way, shape, or form. I think an extra ten thousand would probably would probably do it for me. But um, but whether that's achievable at St James's or not is a is a, another question, which I'm not qualified to answer. If you haven't watched it, watch the fans forum last night, the Monday Club with me and Joe, because Melly also said that um, you know the reason that Newcastle could easily uh, up 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 sticks and move from St James's Park is because they haven't got a history of winning anything there, um, and it would be a good time to leave. So uh, Ben, he certainly provoked a few conversations last night. But what's your take on uh, what our uh, resident Manchester United fan uh, had to say? Well, I think the first thing is Manchester United probably ought to focus on modernising their own stadium because it's amazing how far Old Trafford has fallen behind after the Euros in the 90s to now compared to some of their rivals. It looks a great stadium, but anyone that's worked at Old Trafford will tell you the same thing, that that needs urgent improvement and renovation as well. But with St James's Park, it's interesting because if you presume, which Newcastle fans will want me to, that there's going to be regular success in European football, then the demand now is nothing. And if Newcastle ever get into and regularly into Champions League, then suddenly they urgently need a new stadium, one to cope with the demand, whether those are local diehard fans or, for want of that better phrase, glory hunters, but also commercially, think how much money the club are missing out on by not being able to sell 80-odd thousand or more week in, week out. And at the moment, I think that that stadium would sell out. And of course, when you expand, it's important to note as well that it gives you that capability to give more to away fans as well. So people might say, well, make it 80, but not 85, or make it 85 by not 90. But you've always got that ability especially if it's a new stadium and it's a big game and Newcastle are flying to give more to away fans in order to keep selling it out on a regular basis. So the exact capacity, I don't think, is relevant to this. I think they need to determine whether, as Ross says, they're going to renovate or they're going to explore a new plot. And they tried this, of course, in the 90s as well, next to St James's Park. So it's not the first time that they've looked at these kind of options. But I think what makes Newcastle unique and very hard to get consensus, which is why the fan base need to be consulted first and foremost, is that the stadium itself is not just a football stadium. It's emblematic of the entire city. It's at the top of a hill. It looks down on everything. It's a symbol of Newcastle as a city. And that in itself makes a big difference because you're not talking about a nice modern stadium in the middle of nowhere that could be moved. You're not talking about a big flat plot of land that can be easily developed. It's problematic because what you're doing is you're removing a symbol as well as a football stadium if you move. And there's so much love and affiliation. And naturally, you can do what many do in this kind of circumstance. And design-wise, if you do move, you can take tenants of St. James's Park so people still feel familiar and at home. And Tottenham did a good job of that. And another great example of that, I think, is the Vincente Calderon, which isn't anything like the Wanda Metropolitana, but they've still tried to, one, maintain certain touches, but two, as importantly, instead of just letting it rot, 
they've auctioned off aspects of that ground. They've allowed people to kind of visit it over the last few years. Now, ironically, it's kind of rotting away. But when it was first being transitioned, which is the key point, because people forget very quickly. So you get outrage, you get people missing it. But then once you've played a season or two, people kind of forget about it. How many people talk about the old Wembley and those famous kind of arches now? Most people, especially younger generations, even never went there or they don't really care because it's kind of in the same place and they like the new stadium. How many people now are talking about White Hart Lane? Spurs fans would have to correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think most people are just wowed by how that new stadium is the most modern and digital friendly in the Premier League at the moment. And it's the same with Highbury in the Emirates Stadium. So I would say outrage from the club's point of view is probably not that important because it's transient. And if they do a good job moving away, they'll have a very modern stadium that everybody likes and appreciates because it's there for all to see the improvement. But what they must, must do because of that previous point of the stadium being emblematic culturally, not just in football terms of the city, is they must consult with the fan base and respect the overriding opinion, particularly from the diehard fans. And if it turns out that in that consultation, it isn't just outrage, it is a consensus that there must not be a move away, then they need to try and find a staggered phase development to find a solution. But if not on social media, but within the fan base, they actually find that there is some outrage, but there is a genuine appreciation if they can put a strategy forwards that a new stadium will add more than a development. If they win over that fan base in the consultation, then absolutely find a plot and move away from it because then those that are against it will quickly be won over, I'm sure, when they see the modern new stadium that's being put forward. So really my answer is not to say Newcastle should or shouldn't have a new stadium or should do redevelopment. My answer, kind of like the last question, is they must, must come in front of a large reflection of the fan base and see what the consensus is and read the room and then go away, perhaps with two options, and then again come back and almost put it referendum style to the fan base. Because if the fan base are not integral and involved and almost have like a golden share style vote on this, that's the biggest error for me that they can make. Great stuff. Great crack, as usual. We'll finish with Clubber Lang, who says, I've just had the window cleaner outside shouting and swearing at me, banging on me windows, calling me all the names under the sun. I think he's lost his rag. <laughs> Thanks, mate. He's always good for a joke clubber. Uh, big thanks to Ross and Ben. Great to have both of you on. Did you enjoy it? Absolutely. Yeah, I loved it. A bit different, a bit different. So you never know, we might get you back together again. Uh, but as always, lads, uh, thanks for giving up your time. Ben, where can people find your work? At Jacobs Ben on Twitter and maybe soon on TikTok as well. I'll have more on that for you next week. Oh, my God. Ross, what about you? I've got no interest in TikTok watch. <laughs> Me neither at the moment, but by next week I'll have learned how to use it. <laughs> Brilliant. The only TikTok I'm interested in is when the, 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 the pub opening times come around. <laughs> you can find Ross at the Chronicle. He's also on Twitter. Um, and uh, great to have you both on, lads. Have a good week. Speak to you next week. Take care. Have a good week, everyone. Cheers, guys. 
A big thanks to our sponsors, Skips and Bins, telephone 0800 2545 2538, email inquiries at website, easy contract free and pay as you go waste collection. Thanks to Darren Baldwin Funerals, based on Old Durham Road in Gateshead. Their phone number is 0191478273. You can email Darren at darrenbaldwinfunerals.co.uk or go to the website, darrenbaldwinfunerals.co.uk. Thanks to Garden of Healing Dispensary, CBD, hemp and cannabinoid specialists based on Nun Street. The GOHD.com is their website. And thanks again to Three Property Investments who specialise in sourcing investment properties for their clients who are looking to invest in the northeast. They offer a full in-house service from sourcing the deals to managing the properties for you. They've done over 100 plus deals in the past 12 months for clients all over the UK. Give them a follow on Instagram, matty.patta underscore northeast property and phil.read underscore northeast property or email phil at threeproperty.co.uk if you're interested in getting a good property deal. Thanks to the lads at Mr. Vicky's uh, Handmade in Cumbria. These are hot sources and you can find them at mrvickys.co.uk or place an order uh, by ringing 01768 210102. Thanks also to the lads at Blowhole Brewery. A fine uh, amount of ales available from their website, www.blowholebrewery.co.uk. Thanks to Media Arts for all the help with the video technology. Thanks to qtechshop.co.uk, the makers of pool tables and snooker tables in Walls and Newcastle. And the guys who run our website, nufcmatters.com. If you want to subscribe, hit the badge in the corner and you can subscribe for free. Still do seven shows a week. Hit the thumb up to like the video and click share to share via social media. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify and the rest. And if you want to become a member, click join underneath this video or you can put your smartphone over the QR code. It will take you to the membership section of the website. Uh, if you choose to go that way, uh, then you will get a pen, a cup, a scarf and a membership card and entry into the monthly draw for a one-off payment of £25. We also give you something for free. If you want a car window sticker, email john at nufcmatters.com and he will send you one if you are a subscriber. We also help the food bank on here. Uh, NUFC fans, foodbank.co.uk is the match day bucket. If you go there, you can make a virtual donation at any time of the year. And don't forget, Peter Beardsley Soccer School, October half term, Monday the 24th to Friday the 28th of October. You can book now, peterbeardsleysoccerschool.com. Peter's also running Monday night training on the 26th of October. Again, the same website. And if you want to meet Peter Beardsley, well, you've got three chances. Newcastle Legends game, Friday, October the 14th. The Peter Beardsley talk-in is taking place after the game. Tickets for this are available from nufcmatters.com. Adult admission is a fiver. Junior admission is £2. The talking is adults only, and that is a tenner. And uh, the events are all taking place at the Fox Hunters Pavilion in North Shields. We've got Peter Beardsley available, uh, tickets available for the St Dom's Catholic Club show. Uh, you need to go straight to their website um, and uh, you just buy your tickets there. And for this one at the Irish Centre, uh, tickets are available now on NUFC Matters. Com. Don't forget, Supermax at the Dog and Parrot, every pre-match and every post-match, every home game. And John Gibson and John Anderson are at Pumphrey's pre-match only. If you did like our true crime stuff, it has all migrated to the true crime channel. So get yourself across there on YouTube and subscribe today.